Hello, welcome to another episode of the Science Shambles podcast. This episode was recorded in a dressing room backstage at the Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People shows in December. Robin sat down with two of the people who write for our Cosmic Shambles blog network, Dr Susie Gage, who writes the Sifting the Evidence blog and also hosts the Say Why to Drugs podcast you might be familiar with, and Dr Dean Burnett, who writes the Brain Yapping blog for Cosmic Shambles and also is the host of a brand new podcast called Brain Yapping, which he hosts with journalist Rachel England. That podcast, which tries to untangle some of the myths about the human brain, is new and exclusive to the Cosmic Shambles Network, and that will begin on January 28th with the first two episodes going out. Then you can find all the links and whatnot for that at cosmicshambles.com slash brainyapping. It's a really great, fun podcast. We think you're all going to really enjoy that, so do check it out as well as our Patreon, all the stuff like the blogs and this podcast and new podcasts. Uh, We fund that purely by people coming to our shows and supporting us on Patreon. So if you enjoy this, please do go to patreon.com slash bookshambles or the Cosmic Shambles website and check out uh, how you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. That is how we're able to produce all this content and keep it ad-free for you to enjoy, which hopefully... You do. So without any further ado, uh, here's this week's episode. Welcome to uh, one of the, well, it's going to be around Christmas time, Science Shambles, so it's uh, one of those review of the year. Uh, now, Dean Burnett, for you, the single of the year, oh no, it's not this kind of thing, is it? Uh, joined by Dean Burnett and Susie Gage, and you both, you're both doctors, aren't you? Well, I am. Yes, yeah. Susie, I know it is, but... Uh... Be your doctor and your doctor. Yeah, yes. yeah I just want to check on the doctor. Because the uh, um, so the first question, I suppose. But exactly, don't ask about your rash. Not exactly. Actually, do you know what? My wife did say when Ben Goldacre's on, ask her about that lump on your nose. <laughs> so I will because I, I don't. He think... can only tell you at a population level. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. No. I mean, Yeah. If he can look at it as a cellular level and then create that <laughs> the lump in my nose to be a population of yeah. uh, aberrant or aberrant cells, that'd be great. Um, Dean, so and, and Susie, I'll start off with uh, you. You're probably, I suppose, the most regular blogger out of all of us sitting here. Would that be fair, Susie? Yeah, you blog yeah. quite a lot, but Dean, yeah. you do, and a lot of your stuff is reactive um, yeah, to yeah. to what's in the news. What have been the the issues that this year you thought, oh right, here we go. I'm now going to have to try and get the evidence based idea out because this has been picked up and is being yeah, well, the most recent one was um, the is it, uh, Simon Baron Cohen's thing of uh, we have proved that men and women have different brains, and I actually my title of my response was men and women's brains must we keep doing this? But the, the exasperation itself was endemic in the writing, and I, I will say my response to it was it probably was an, an oversimplification of the issues themselves. I, I'm not I, at no point do I think I deny that men and women do have different brain structures in place, but the idea that they are so influential that all these stereotypes are true, like this is why women can't read maps, this is why men aren't emotional, and that is, um, I always see that as perfectly in reverse engineered, as in, we think this is true, how do we prove it with uh, cherry-picked evidence? And yeah, so I just 
did a bit of summary of that. And I only knew about the piece itself because I was called in the morning about half seven when I was still asleep by Sky News saying, can you come on and talk about this? I said, who are you? What do you want? What is this? And they sent me an email saying, well, this is about this. Said, okay, okay. Oh, God. And that was... Said, yeah, so, so could you summarise... I know this might be hard, and I know that by summarising we almost fall into the trap, but yeah, the, the basis that. of what is the evidence that's being offered by Simon Baron-Cohen for this male brain, female brain? In this particular instance, it was because a lot of people filled in a survey online about uh, their particular habits. Normally, like a, a collection of 10 questions about different areas. And it was a, a survey set up by Channel 4 to begin with, which I find not much like Channel 4, not the most scientifically rigorous institution because they're not really about... May not have had to go through an ethics committee like most research that's I'm conducted in that universities. They, you know, they didn't spend six or seven months waiting for a reply from the ethics committee to say, is this allowed? <laughs> and it was like, data based on that. And from that, I mean, I'm not saying like, the data itself did show certain patterns in certain directions, but there's no way to say this is clearly, as the, as the press around it did, it was like saying, well, this clearly shows that men and women have different brains. You didn't look at anyone's brain at any one point. You just asked lots of different people different questions. And from people I've spoken to since who are on the autistic spectrum, because there's a subcategory of that, it wasn't made clear what they were looking for. They weren't like saying, uh, well, what do you... Oh, no, sorry. It was in terms of the survey was uh, called, are you autistic? Now, that's going to have preconceptions when you start. And if you think, if you think, am I autistic? And then you ask the question... Are you analytical? You know, I don't want to be autistic, so I'll say no. Even if you don't think it on a conscious level, on a subconscious level, that will be a help. It'll be an influence to be a variable which you can't rule out. So I'm not saying it's not good data. There's plenty of data. It's not a huge sample uh, study, but to take that and say, well, this clearly shows that there are different brains. That isn't quite how it. Uh, how it works in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And from data like that, it's absolutely impossible to separate out sort of biology from yeah. culture. And we, we know was, yeah. so much about how we're brought up in a gendered society. Yeah, and that, that was the point I made is in, you know, if you've got, these are all people from the general population with internet access. So you've got like 100,000 women who say, are you emotional? So, yes, I've been told for like 50 years that I am. So I'm going to say yes. And uh, otherwise, I'm not. I'm, I'm a bad woman. What does "are you emotional" mean? Precisely. <laughs> that, yes. that, that, that's <laughs> such a. That's that's well, such a bizarre thing, <laughs> because, yeah, man. Susie, you let out a, a beautiful sigh, which I think was captured full, fully on the microphone when this subject came up. Why is there this? Because I might be wrong about this, and you're both scientists, whereas I'm an idiot, right? Which is, the obsession, or seemingly. Uh, obsession between the idea of a difference between a male and a female brain in terms of the actual pragmatic use beyond to some extent alibis <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just interested in why you think this you know what 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 why why does this continue to go on is there something interesting scientifically or medically within this or is it to work out oh you see the difference between men and women and thus my Saturday night hen, you know, stag night set? Oh, I mean, that's just a, just a simple question. Yeah. Uh, I think, I suppose the first thing I'd say is it's perfectly possible to be a scientist and an idiot. But um, otherwise, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, there are a million reasons why people might want to believe that there are differences between men and women's brains, because it, it means we have to do less in terms of trying to ungender society and say, well, but those differences are there. We can do less about the pay gap. We can do less about trying to encourage more women to go into science because women are just different from men, so we don't have to, which completely ignores um, the sort of growing bodies of evidence that actually diversity of all kinds leads to better 
sort of working environments, better creativity, all of this kind of thing. Um, but, I, but I wonder whether that's at least part of it. I'm sure it's not the only explanation, but there are some people who just quite like things the way they are. And saying, well, men and women have different brains is quite a bit of a get out clause of having to sort of do anything to try and improve equality. That is the gist I get from most of the stuff I've read about. I mean, I think there are also valid medical reasons to look at it in terms of if this particular drug, for example, doesn't work as well on women as on men, but it is like mm-hmm. the default drug to give to people, then that's bad. That means women aren't getting the same level of therapy yeah. that men get. And you know, the same also comes with the race thing. There are some drugs I've heard which uh, sort of are more effective for African-Americans or uh, Asian people because they have different enzymes yeah. in, in heroin. So there is that side to it. I mean, it's not a totally unreasonable thing to look at, but mm-hmm. it's also... It's more the way it's portrayed. Like you say, it's a case of, no, we are right because we are. They, they have different brains, and therefore, you know, shut up. Yeah, you're right, and that's the, that's the really frustrating thing is because historically, so much medical research has been done largely on populations of white men, and actually, we miss all of this nuance about, as you say, medications having different effects in different groups. So, um, and also things like so. A, my PhD was looking at links between cannabis and psychosis, and the, the, by far the largest study of the link between cannabis and psychosis was. Dis- um, conducted on Swedish conscripts. So in Sweden, there's um, you have a year of conscription where you do very. I don't really know what you do. Various army things, I guess. <laughs> but everyone has data collected on them. So it's a huge, huge study of basically all the male population. But it's all men, and that's there might well be other differences um, between men and women. And the problem when you're sort of pushed into this corner of saying actually no, look, the m- women aren't emotional and men aren't analytical there is there's far more variation within women or within men than there is between but then that means you sort of have then miss out on but there are really important differences of looking separately at men and women for all kinds of things but i will say it's something which occurred to me how ingrained it was this idea that you look at research and if it's mostly on men you you see that as just normal it's mostly on women that seems odd now because a lot there is some sort of underlying justification that you can never be entirely sure if a woman's pregnant if she's of age therefore you potentially I think that's personally a bit of a get out clause rather than any particularly it's true that like for people who menstruate the cycle of uh, changing hormones and that kind of thing it does have a big impact it impacts on how you metabolize alcohol it impacts on all sorts of things so yeah it's pesky it's like lots of brain scanning studies only using right-handed people because left-handed people have weirdly structured mm. brains compared to right-handed yeah. people. But they're not weirdly structured brains, they're just different. Yeah. But This is what I was going again, because I was doing, like, for my second book, I was doing this study on this chapter about um, love and sex relationships, and I found a lot of the research about how orgasm works in the human brain focuses almost entirely on women, female subjects. So that, that, that is atypical. So I asked uh, Chris Chambers, our mutual friend, who does a lot of brain scanning, I said, why is that? So, well, three reasons. One, um, it, uh, you know, if you have a brain scanning study, you need to keep your head as still as possible. And that's hard to do that if you are a man who is self-stimulating. And uh, secondly, you know, that also, with men doing it, it produces a lot of mess and chaos. And, <laughs> and, but also, the, the male orgasm doesn't last that long, so the technology involved in scanning doesn't, isn't as good at catching their orgasm as a female one, which I thought was you know, interesting itself. And I mentioned this to my editor, and... He said, I've noticed some, a lot of school of thought which says, like, what is the purpose of the female orgasm? And there's lots of different arguments because it's not so directly linked to reproduction as the male one is. And some say, like, well, it's, 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 um, you know, it's more of a social bonding thing. It bonds you to your partner. It's more of a defensive thing. So it makes you sort of shut down. And then you know, 
endure the act or whatever is going on from the evolutionary perspective. But there's a school of, you know, a few psychologists who say that the female organ has no, orgasm has no purpose. It's vestigial, like the appendix or male nipples, if you want to talk like that. So you know, it, it was useful once, but now there's no need for it. And I looked up a lot of the research and a lot of the scientists say this are actually men. I'm thinking, no, I, I've, I've failed hmm. men before, I'll be honest, but I've never actually dedicated my life to debunking the female orgasm because I was so so upset that my uh, skills were not appreciated. So, well, I, I, your, your phrase there, endure the act. That was um, what, I, what I read, and I'm thinking, yes, this has uh, a lot yeah. more power. Hello, darling, we've been drinking for a while, haven't we? I'm already married for years, and the time we endured the act. Um <laughs> Susie, what about uh, in terms of uh, drug research and the news stories that we've seen, what have you had to do the hardest work to uh, try and untangle the reality to what is an interesting and uh, alluring headline? Um, Well, so my early morning phone call from, it wasn't Sky News, it was Radio 4, uh, that was when um, Sajid Javid announced that he was going to come down hard on middle-class cocaine users. (laughs) <laughs> and um, <laughs> there's many there's many avenues to go down with this, but uh, although um, middle class, it, if you do a graph of cocaine use by sort of socio demographic status, then middle class looks like it's the highest, but it's actually because it's a smaller bar on the gra- on the bar chart, the total is less. So although it looks the highest, there's actually more people in some of the other bars. And what seems to be missed here is that powder cocaine and crack cocaine are still cocaine and actually the powder cocaine isn't necessarily having as much sort of social harm or causing as much harm to an individual as uh, as the crack cocaine and his argument as well was that it would be to sort of come down hard on middle class cocaine users would stop the knife violence that we see in our inner cities and stop the kind of what's called county lines drug dealing. Um, but actually, having um, sort of spoken to quite a lot of people who work in the police and that kind of thing, who've been on, on the ground dealing with uh, dealers and people who use drugs, all that they report is that you take someone off the street and you, you might stop the supply for a couple of hours. Like, these, these are big organisations and dealing with kind of that level isn't really isn't really practical in terms of reducing usage. So it was a very, it's a very sort of, it was a very nice sound bite for him and it got me a lot of radio work for a few <laughs> days, but then it kind of disappeared again because also, how is he going to do that? What yeah, does that's... it mean? It's such a meaningless phrase. Talk to your friends. Yeah. Isn't that it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell my friends to stop taking so much cocaine. There was that, again, it's a news story, so one should be careful, but uh, there, there was that lovely piece once about testing the £10 notes that had worked their way out of the House of Commons, I think it was. <laughs> or, or I can't remember where yeah. it was. They, they'd done some swabbing or other. Yeah. And... Uh, so I think, yes, that's what it is, basically. Uh, yeah. I'm going to crack down on it by saying, no, Toby, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Just enjoy, enjoy the gin, the other, move on. The other thing that it sort of really misses is that this idea of like punitive measures for people who use drugs, they've been proven, or oh, there's so much evidence that they're not effective in reducing people's own drug use. So ignoring the organised crime, the violence, the sort of drug trafficking, all of this kind of thing, if you... If you increase the punitive measures on people using drugs, it doesn't reduce their drug use. So it won't, it won't have the effect that he thinks it has. And those data are from 
a report that was commissioned by the government. So that's their their findings, and yet he comes out with these snappy sound bites. Yeah, but that's a lot of it's now politics is now basically I'm going to do this definitely, and it's even like especially with the Brexit stuff. I've seen like someone says like David Davis said something seven months ago saying, "Oh, the government says they will no, no, there will definitely be no free freedom movement. There will definitely be no." Said, it definitely won't be a Mad Max apocalypse with one, a genuine quote. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, so he said it once in a press conference, and that's a report that is absolute fact, that is, like, there's no denying this. The government said, we will definitely not be doing that. So two days later, oh, it turns out we are doing that. that and, but back to what you said just now, um, the whole, like, if you test in 10-pound notes, uh, that's, that's come up a lot, like, if you test, like, a certain 10 or 5-pound note, it's got loads of traces of cocaine on it. Was that a factor in why we have these shiny plastic notes now? Because <laughs> a lot less friction on those, so <laughs> not, like, not, not, not you can't use them to suck up cocaine. They don't hold as much. So, like later on, you can test it. See, see, test a tempo note now. No drug cocaine there at all. Must be going down. Yeah. Hmm, White clean currency for <laughs> pragmatic drug user reasons. Um, yeah. What has been on on the positive side, Susie, in terms of drug research this year? What have been the things which you feel are movements forward of our understanding? Um, I don't know whether it was this year or the end of last year, but the stuff that I'm finding really exciting is the use of psychedelics in therapy. Um, there's loads and loads of work going on with quite a lot of different like classical psychedelics, like LSD and mushrooms. That's David Nutt's. Is he spearheading really, a lot of that yeah, stuff? Yeah, uh, Robin Carhart Harris leads it now, but David, he, they work together, yeah. Um, but also uh, sort of other kind of psychedelic drugs like ketamine and MDMA, and all of these are being used in such interesting ways. Um, so I've conducted a few interviews uh, for my podcast about um, about this kind of research that's going on. And every time I speak to a new researcher about it, I'm just like, oh, this is so fascinating. And we're by no means kind of there yet. We are... Um, with kind of doing pilot studies, open label studies, where everyone... I mean, it's quite hard to double blind if you're taking LSD, as I'm sure people can imagine. But... Um, these kind of trials, and they look really, really interesting. I suppose the other thing as well that's happened this year is uh, medical cannabis. Well, go, before we get on to that, then, I'd, I'd like to say on the LSD stuff, because I read Michael Pollan's book, uh, which title I've forgotten, but I interviewed him How for a book. How to Change Your Mind. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The, uh, we did a book shambles with him, and, and I found that really interesting in terms of so much of the history that I'd had no idea about. The fact that there was a couple of incidents, which may have been for multiple reasons, they got that, that was it. They became the anecdotal attachment, say LSD is tremendously dangerous and will kill you. Mm-hmm. And all of these things, I was the use of therapy, the use with alcoholics. Now, have you um, taken part in any research? Because I'm fascinated, because I know that when when uh, the, the thing spearheaded by, by David Nutt originally, and there was it Robin Carhart? Harris. Harris, yeah. that, that um, you know, it's very, very specific, the amount that's given. It's very careful, obviously. I, I just wondered, what is the kind of experience that someone might have in these, uh, you know, yeah. medically appropriate environments? No, I haven't taken part in any of the studies, but because I'm writing a book at the moment called Say White Drugs, available next January, plug, um, already on Amazon if you're interested. Um, Actually, this January is, coming? No. Well, no, I was going to say, it's one of those, yeah. I'm, that's why I'm not, like, completely pallid and <laughs> yeah. stressed. And just, yeah, it seemed yeah. rather robust for someone who was on a book out in a month. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I've, spe- I've spoken to quite a few people who have taken psychedelics and also who've taken psychedelics as part of an experiment. And it's really interesting because... One of the things we know about drugs in general, but psychedelics in particular, is that set and setting are really important. And I think that's something that in the beginning of, um, of the book that you were just talking about, he talks about the language 
actually no it's not his book at all it's a book about dmt i've just just i've read so many books about drugs recently i'm getting confused but um if you the language that you'll use to describe your experience like are you a celebrant taking part in a ritual being given a drug by a shaman are you a research participant being given a medicine by a medical professional are you a psychonaut taking a psychedelic substance that's been given to you by a dealer though that language can just have a on that environment that you're in can have a massive impact on the type of experience that you have when you're intoxicated and i mean we see this even with alcohol like the experience you have when you're drunk will depend on where you are and who you're with and we all know that but it's the same if not even more so for drugs like psychedelics that are so impactful on kind of emotion and personality and that kind of thing so i think it's you have to get the environment quite right and there's actually there's a whole sort of wing of Robin Carhart Harris's research group that are specifically looking at this like what music do we play what lighting do we have uh, what do we need like nice soft furnishings that people like furry blankets that people can touch while they're intoxicated that kind of thing because all your senses are warped or heightened or changed so where you are is really important and I know that when they first started thinking about doing these studies they wanted to put people who are, who've taken psilocybin, so the active ingredient magic mushrooms, into a brain scanner. And, I mean, Dean knows a lot about brain scanners. He's already said that um, probably masturbating in an MRI scanner is not going to work. But imagine having a... What I love about him is he checks all these things beforehand. <laughs> yeah. He will I, never I just take say, the I don't want to be that guy, but yeah. Robin got there first, and I am that guy. So that's, <laughs> yeah. I have a story about that as well, so that's, that's by the by. But yeah, the yeah. point is you have to keep very still. <laughs> and um, when you're... In, like tripping the environment that you're in is really important so a thinking about keeping still might be difficult but also your your head is kind of clamped in place and you're shoved into this big tube hmm. that's making an absolute racket it's, they're really loud and quite weird it's a very odd sensation it's like being trapped inside a screaming metal dolphin that's what I was see i like it that means i'm happy to live inside a robot no, I, I find because, it quite yeah i find it really it's lovely yeah. well, but it's atypical <laughs> But yeah, so they actually built a cardboard MRI scanner when David Nutt was still in Bristol um, in, in the attic of some building. And I know some of my friends were involved in those pilot studies of not being in a real scanner, but being in this pretend scanner, taking psilocybin to see whether people tolerate it and whether people find it horrendous. Or And that was, so that's a really interesting kind of start to these kind of studies, I think. Mm. But now, like, now where we've come, they've managed to do network analysis of sort of brain connectivity while you're intoxicated and that kind of thing. And, and the results are really, really interesting. And we're still so far away from understanding how what's happening at a neurological level translates into the psychedelic experience that we have. There's still this kind of like black box in the middle of what is going on. But we're getting closer, I think. It's really interesting. Um, Dean, what about in terms of neuroscience in the last year or so? What have been the, uh, the most interesting things for you that are perhaps if not paradigm shifts, you know, uh, suggestions of that. I will say, I'm going to bring it up because obviously I'm doing it tonight in the, the show we're doing, but the whole, you know, at the start of the year in January, Johan Hari released his book about mental health or depression works, and I seem to have end, almost like by accident ended up being the, the figurehead of the resistance to that thing. Uh, I, I don't think I was the most expert person commenting, but I seem to have the biggest profile and platform, so it seemed to coalesce around me a bit. And although that was completely depressing, ironically, to see that this, you know, these views can still have a lot of traction and you can still get so much attention for this idea of you know, depression. It isn't just chemicals, it's all about life experience, which 
it, the whole thing of my main, main issue, uh, well, among several others, was that his perspective on how depression works was like 10 years out of date. Almost like he's been outside of the main, you know, the, the mainstream for 10 years for some weird reason. And, um, you know, so, but, but it, the backlash, which like, obviously I, I was encouraged to do it. I wasn't going to. I thought, oh, here we go. I just rolled my eyes. I got so many people telling me this is you know, out of line. Please say something because you the guy who does this sort of thing. But you know, I think it was a really good demonstration of how far the conversation around mental health has moved on since I started writing about it and other people did too. It may have not progressed enough. There's still plenty to do. There's still plenty which needs to be done. But it has progressed. And there are you know, the major understanding. And I think the example I use is like, you, you're far more likely to see exam- arguments now like, like his of antidepressants don't do anything. They're useless rather than depression isn't a thing. Like we've got past the point where at least that's not the most common argument now. Now it's a case of drugs useless now, rather than you're not really, there's nothing wrong with you. So that was at least encouraging on that side of things. I mean, it's been a year of just constant bin fires in terms of mainstream news, but by now that was an encouraging move. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, I imagine it's not uh, my, my resistance to the, the Hari thing, which he was very championed by The Guardian and like he was given very glowing reviews and his, uh, you know, his excerpts were given huge publicity and I was not willing to toe the line with that despite behind the scenes definitely asked me to you know, please you know, take it down or at least put this up and, and a few months later the blog network was shut down sorry Susan <laughs> so was it but your fault? I'm, well, I'm not, I don't know if it is but I'm, I'm spreading the rumour that it was because I think that makes me look better <laughs> and that, that brings up to me a point of interest which is how much of an issue do you think it is when the people reviewing books which are based supposedly on a lot of evidence-based science are not involved in that world? Now, because I realise there's two sides to this, which is um, one side, of course, you can end up, you know, you look in the literary review and things like that, and sometimes think, oh, I know why they've given this book to this person is because they really have a, have a beef with, with this particular individual. But equally... Uh, I do find that that's a problem. Sometimes I read reviews of books and I think this person who's reviewing this book knows as much as me and really this should be reviewed by someone who understands what is is up to date with the current thinking in this particular area. Um, I personally do think that is a big problem and it's something I've actually raised before despite the constant objections from my publishers and agent because I am by a large a science author now. I don't think books are the best medium for conveying science. I know, they, now they, you tell me. Yeah, well, I know, but... No, you only just finished the book. <laughs> I haven't even finished it yet. I know, so you've got time to stop. But, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, they are good mediums. I'm not saying that they're bad. But it, to me, it's the, it's the same as in, like, like, Windows is the default operating system. No one thinks it's the best one. It's just the one which has caught on. Mm-hmm. It's obviously... It's, it, it's part of the, you know, the, the furniture now. And science moves too fast for... like If you write a book, like, it takes... At least a year to write a book. To say that, perhaps a lot more than that. The time you write it and published, odds are the science. If you're looking at something cutting yeah. edge and really progressing, by the time it's hit the shelf, a lot of that science is going to be, if not, you know, devalued. It's just going to be. It's moved on a bit since then. And if it's like Stephen Hawking's books, he's got lots of books out which are still bestsellers and still really popular. But the physics of it all now has moved on. Like the whole idea of how the universe works has progressed since then. So you know, books have this sort of authority which is a bit. Not not helpful, but but also they have to tell a story, they have to have a narrative. Like, well, I think blogging is the best medium for communicating science because you can put hyperlinks. You can say, as this study shows, click. There's that study, and you can do that a bit with books. It's not so easy. So, if only yeah. there was some blogging network on a major national newspaper. 
Don't be stupid, Steve. That would never work. I wonder if anyone would take it over at, at tremendous personal expense. Perhaps <laughs> uh, <laughs> on rubbish um, Final question. I'll, I'll do this on your mic, but which is um, just because you mentioned med- medicalised cannabis as as one of the things of the, of, of the last year in terms of increased understanding. Get us up to date with that. It's so interesting, right? Um, I'm really excited about what's happening, but the thing that really, really, really needs to happen is research because almost all like there's hardly any evidence based behind medical cannabis at the moment. And there's loads of anecdote and everything looks really promising. And so me, me saying that we need more research is not saying it doesn't work. It's saying we have really strict rules about medications in this country for good reason, because we want our medication to be evidence-based. It's why you can't get homeopathy in the NHS anymore, because it doesn't work. Um, because then <laughs> that one, there is a lot of evidence yeah. that it doesn't work. But for cannabis, there's no evidence either way because it's been so hard to do the studies. So what needs to happen now and what I think as the sort of public consciousness is changing and there's been some sort of really good campaigning that's been going on but now we need to back that up with the research that means that then we can make it an evidence-based medicine or if it doesn't work we have to accept that it doesn't work and I think that is going to be an interesting thing that happens in the next few years and can I quickly mention CBD oil as well so CBD cannabidiol which is one of the compounds in cannabis is something that's being really researched at the moment and if you've walked down a high street past a kind of health food shop, you'll see CBD oil being sold. At the moment, like if you swallow it, it doesn't really do anything because your body digests it before it can do much. But it's another one of those things where loads and loads of people are saying, oh, this, this works for me, this does all this, blah, blah, blah. But at the moment, like people have taken stuff that you can buy on the high street and analysed it and what it says is in it isn't in it. But I think there's potential excitement there. So when it's been controlled medically, there's been some really interesting research that there's lots of there's lots of studies linking cannabis and psychosis. Right. I did my Ph.D. looking at that. But now there's some evidence that cannabidiol might actually be an antipsychotic. So some people are saying that maybe the reason sort of cannabis like skunk is particularly risky to take if you might be predisposed to psychosis is because it has really high levels of THC but hardly any CBD and what we've had in the past is cannabis where the ratio is a bit more balanced and there are even studies now that have started to give patients with psychosis CBD alongside their usual medication and it's small scale studies but it's looking promising and I think that's really really exciting as well because at the moment the medications that we have to treat psychosis give really horrendous side effects and if there's a way we can find a medication that doesn't do that that could be really really valuable i will say that um, just as a end note that uh, my grandmother obviously started taking uh, cannabis oil for a bad hip and uh, you were trying to buy a bob marley hat for a 78 year old lady it's, <laughs> it's it's a challenge dean burnett Dr. Susie Gage. Dr. Dean Burnett. That's fine. Dr. Susie Gage. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, you can read their blog posts, etc., on cosmicshambles.com. And uh, Susie, if you're waiting for a book, you've still got another year to wait, but it'll be worth it. And uh, if you're waiting for Dean's book, uh, well, he's got two. They're like buses. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I've got two out next year. So. You've got two out next year. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. We'll buy at least one of them, but don't overdo it. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it far and wide uh, on your social media, the Science Shambles podcast, uh, as well as consider supporting the podcast and all the stuff we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network on our Patreon. The link for that is patreon.com slash bookshambles. 
Sorry, my brain broke for a second there because this is science shambles, but the link uh, for the Patreon is book shambles. But you probably know that already. Don't forget to look out for Dean's new podcast coming to the Cosmic Shambles Network, Brain Yapping. That starts January 28. Susie and Dean's blogs, both part of the network as well, do have a read of those. New episodes of Book Shambles on the way too. New episodes of Science Shambles coming soon as well. Our next episode uh, will be with Robin chatting to archaeologist Dr Brenna Hassett and particle physicist Dr Linda Cremonisi. So keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those things for that. We will be back soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.